Well, this morning, it's going to be a little different. We normally teach verse by verse of the Bible, and we have been in Ephesians chapter 1. But what has happened is in the Calvary Chapel movement, and I will include myself in that, we have had dribbles, and some have out and out taught, a Calvinistic viewpoint. And I love the Calvinists. They're our brothers in the Lord. But unfortunately, the way they view predestination and election is twisted. And it's unethical. It's wrong. And it really undermines the Christian life in Christ. And, you know, I, I, I tried to get the minimal amount in here to explain it. I usually have, what, six pages of notes? I have 15 today. So, um, hope you brought your lunch. But I have a lot of verses in there. We're not going to read them. I'm just going to sort of allude to them, and you're there for you to read later. But whether you agree with me or don't agree with me, we, that, that's irrelevant almost. It's just I want you to realize there's a different way of looking at it that I feel is more biblical. I definitely feel it's more healthy. And I, I feel it's, once you understand there is another way of looking at this rather than the glasses of Calvinism, you may well choose to say, hey, th this makes more sense. And, and so in essence, I'm saying here's one way of looking at it through the lens of Calvinism, and, and probably in some degree or another, if you've been in the Calvary, you've been affected by that. I certainly was. But here's another one, a traditional view. So if you uh, think of Billy Graham or Ravi, Ravi Zacharias, um, um, Tozer, you, you know, you think of the, the major theologians, D.L. Moody, all of these guys through the time, they... they they, they held a traditional view, a non-Calvinistic view. And so I, I'm not taking you down a road that few Christians are. There's actually few Calvinists. But they're very vocal when it comes to a couple of minor doctrines of predestination and election. But when you hear them talk, it sounds like the whole Bible, every other word, is predestination or election. It's really not. And so bear with me. If you're here going, man, I came to have my heart warm today and not to be through a lecture, come back next week. <laughs> but try to hang in here with us today. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to look at what's called a conditional election and predestination. What is the condition? You have to believe. If you believe in Jesus, you have now passed the conditions to be the elect and the predestined. In Calvinism, it's conditional. God determined before time began who would be elect and who would not be elect. And if you are the elect, you're going to get saved no matter what. If you are not the elect, there's no way, shape, or form you're going to make it to heaven because you weren't destined, determined by God before time began to believe. End of story. When you hear Calvinists talk about election and predestination, they make them sound like the same thing. They are not. And we're going to break it apart and show you the difference. So, first of all, I, I want to look at how a Calvinist looks at it. And some of you are going to go, yeah, that's, that sounds right. And, and then I'm going to show you why it's wrong. So, Calvinism... It believes that God determines everything. That it was God's will. 
Well, somebody was raped. It was God's will. Somebody was murdered. God's will. Man chose to do this. God determined man to do that. God determined it. At best, it's determinism. The doctrine that all events, including human actions, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. At worst, it's fatalism. And you'll see this, this definition fits perfectly. A doctrine that events are fixed in advance so that human beings are powerless to change them. You might have noticed, if you're on YouTube, one of the main things that are trending right now is all of these Christian artists saying they're not Christians anymore and they're leaving Christianity. Have you heard this? If you go on and look at them, they all are doing it for this reason. They're saying this, I don't feel like being a Christian anymore. I don't like going to church. I don't like the Bible. I, I don't I don't want anything to do with God. And you know what? I think that God determined that. So I'm just going to quit pretending I'm a Christian. And if God wants me to be a Christian, he'll make me a Christian. But if I want to be a Christian, it doesn't matter what I want. If God hasn't predestined me, I'm, I'm dead in the water anyway. So God can zap me like he did Paul on the way to Damascus. I'm open for it. God, zap me. God, you can make a great fish like Jonah and swallow me up. But until you do that, I'm not going to pretend to follow you. So, am I going to be a Christian? God knows. It doesn't really matter what I do or don't do. God's going to get those who are supposed to be there, there. And God's going to get those who aren't supposed to be there, aren't supposed to be there. End of story. It's fixed. It was fixed before time began. And... Why are we pretending that our choices, our prayers, our attending church, our reading the Bible is making a difference? Because it doesn't. This is, if you follow the end conclusion of determinism or fatalism, this is where everybody goes. Because why am I praying? It's determined already. Well, because God said to. That's their answer. Because God said to. Why am I evangelizing? Because God told you to. You need to obey God. If you're really the elect, you'll go evangelize because God said it. But it, it doesn't matter. Not really. I mean, that, that's got to be the conclusion. But I, if God's determined you to go evangelize, then yeah, it's important. But if God didn't determine you to evangelize, then it doesn't matter. So... Let's just see what God determines. In essence, it does this. The free will of man doesn't exist. Guys, any way you slice it, they say it. Oh, it does. It does. You can choose between a hamburger and a hot dog. There's your free will. You can decide what you want on your pizza. There's your free will. But, of course, God determined that you put that on your pizza anyway. I'm not joking, guys. I, I, this, this is, it's, it's laughable, but this is where it leads. And this is why it's so destructive. I would just like to say to you, free will is free will. Well, what, explain Jonah then. You see, in Calvinism, every time you mention the word election or predestination, they say it has to do with salvation. So God determined Jonah to go to Nineveh, and that's what happened. No, it's not a salvation issue. Jonah was already a child of God. He was a believer. He was an obedient prophet of God. But he did not want to go to Nineveh because he was bitter towards them. And so guess what? He was a strong-willed child, right? He was a disobedient believer. He was a stubborn, bitter guy. So what did God do? The same thing every parent would do. Right? Well, then God made him. No, God has a will. Jonah had a will. 
but God's the parent. <laughs> and he's going to make sure his kid quits being a strong-willed child so he doesn't destroy himself. I, I remember my daughter when she was four. It was way over time to go to bed, and she was sitting on the stairs, and I'm not going to go to bed. And I said, okay, you, you got two choices. You can go ahead and go up to bed, and I'll tuck you in and sing to you. Or I will spank you, and then you go up to bed. I'll tuck you in and pray with you and sing to you. <laughs> she looked at me, and I don't like you. And she stomped upstairs, you know. You see, God is a free-willed individual also. So as a parent, he's going to say, you, you want to be a strong-willed child? Let's see who's going to win this battle. He loves us. He's going to get us there, isn't he? Well, what about the prodigal son? There's another one. No. In that case, God just let him reap what he sown. It, he's going to spank himself. I remember my, my son, we had this condo we lived in, and right outside, for whatever reason, the way they did the concrete, little bit of water. It was like ice. And in San Diego, we got a little mist, a little bit of rain, and Cheryl, it was gone to the women's uh, retreat. And I have all three kids. I'm trying to get to church. And of course, the baby spits up on you. Just you're ready to walk out the door. It's, it was quite an ordeal. But I remember saying, okay, it's wet outside. We are walking slowly to the car. I'm going to open the door. Nobody runs. Okay, okay. I open the door. My son Nathan takes off. Three steps, boom. The head hits, and I've got two kids I'm carrying. I'm like, okay, whenever you're ready, get up. I'm waiting for you, and I just walk on by. <laughs> and, I, and I said to him, I said, I, didn't, I don't have to spank you to dis, because you disobeyed. You, you're going to spank yourself with those kind of choices. So the father just said, he, he, there's, he's on a road <laughs> to spanking himself right back to here. And so the son finally came to his senses. Ever happened to you guys? <laughs> and he comes back to the father. Now it's the father's will. The father can reject him. The father could say, I'll make you a slave. The father could ignore him. No, but God's a free-willed individual as well. And he explains his nature to us that never changes. And he received the son. Because that's the nature of God. To get his children. He who begins the good work is going to finish the good work in them, right? So the, neither one of these stories are about salvation. Okay? These, these stories are about disciplining the kids. Well, what about Apostle Paul? Yes, the Lord did his own evangelism with the Apostle Paul. Could God evangelize with an angel? Could God evangelize himself? They're both free-willed individuals. Or can God do it through us? Mainly through us. But the Apostle Paul was a unique guy. We all agree with that, right? The word had already gone in through watching Stephen being stoned to death. Paul held the garments and he saw the love and the kindness of Stephen and it affected him greatly. He didn't get to see Jesus on the cross, but boy, he saw a perfect representation of that in Stephen. It affected him. And so, yes, the Lord shared his gospel with the Apostle Paul and blinded him and brought him to a place. He has a unique testimony, doesn't he? But you know what about our testimony? Everybody has a unique testimony. I bet if we had 100 people or 1,000 people, everybody shares their testimony. I bet we wouldn't get two alike. Because we are unique individuals, God does a unique work through people, typically, to hear the gospel and to receive it. Paul still had to choose, right? I mean, God stopped him in his tracks. 
He let that conviction set in. Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? The Holy Spirit was just on him, convicting him of sin and righteous judgment. He's blinded. He sits there in Damascus. And when Ananias came in and began to share with him, Paul believed. So, yes, but for you to sit here and say, well, there it is. Till God saves me like the Apostle Paul, I'm not going to be saved. You see, that's a very individualistic thought. God's calling on Paul was different. Let me say this, more important than yours. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Sure, there are people more important than other people in the kingdom of God. A fruitful Christian is more important than an unfruitful Christian. And a guy like the Apostle Paul, who God was going to write the New Testament with, it was a unique calling because he was the one appointed to write half of the New Testament. So Paul's conversion was far more important than yours. Live with that. So, of course, it was a unique calling. It was a unique testimony of salvation because Paul was to be a testimony to all of us of a stubborn guy, an evil guy, getting saved. And he says this is why God did it the way he did it in 1 Timothy. So it would be a testimony throughout time how God will save. So predestination to salvation from a Calvinist mind is this. Predestination to salvation is a part of a logical system of thought that goes like this. Before God created, he elected a small portion of those humans who would come from Adam and Eve. They were chosen to have everlasting life. For many Calvinists, election and predestination to salvation, they, they sound identical. They're synonyms. The one God chooses, the one God also predestinates. So God decreed to send his son to die on the cross for the sins of the elect, but only for the sins of the elect. They make it clear Christ did not die and pay on the cross for everybody's sins. That would be foolish. Why would I pay for the sins of somebody I didn't elect to eternal life? I'm only going to pay for the sins of those that are elect. You, you, you know you have a bad doctrine. Let me tell you how you know you have a bad doctrine. When you can take a verse of the Bible and say the exact opposite, and it's correct. Let me give you a verse. God is out of 1 Timothy 2. God wishes all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a verse, right? The Calvinists, I'm going to say it from their point of view, and I'm going to say the ex exact opposite, and it agrees with their doctrine. God does not wish all men to be saved. He does not wish all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Calvinists would have to agree with that. The exact opposite, I say that verse, and it's more true than the Calvinist. Do you understand that? That's, that's serious problems. But let me ask you, do you believe God wishes all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? A Calvinist doesn't. A Calvinist believes only the elect will be saved and only the elect will come to the knowledge of the truth. And those people that are not elect, determined by God, arbitrarily, I pick you, I don't pick you. Why, God? Only I know, I'm not going to tell anybody. It's my own reasons. This is what they want. Listen to John Calvin. If you don't believe, I'm not making this up. Listen to hear some quotes. By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms. But some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. Here's another quote out of book number 
3 of Calvin's Institutes, chapter 23. Individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to a certain death and are to glorify him by this destruction. Calvin makes it clear that all Christians need to be okay with this. And if you're not okay with this, it's probably because you're not the elect. <gasps> I don't want to be the elect. Then you better be okay with God determining everything. But what is the sense of God determining everything? It's not fair. It's not just. It's not ethical. But what do the Calvinists say? Well, God's in a, a dimension of his own. No, he's not. He made the world in his image. He made all of us in his image. God doesn't have one morality for man and another morality for himself. The conscience we have, the morality we have, is exactly as God's. He doesn't have a separate set of rules for himself and then us. That's what they want you to believe. So I have a van that holds 15 people and I come out into the desert and I see 15 people dying of thirst and I pick six of them to go in the van and the rest of them I choose to leave in the desert. And you say, well, it's, you're a wonderful guy to save six, Brian. You're a hero. But then I were to go and say, well, what happened to the other party? Ah, I decided to leave them there to die. Well, didn't, no, there wasn't enough room in the van. No, there's plenty of room. <laughs> it was just too, too hard to get them all in the van. No, it was actually quite easy. They were all still walking. They were banging on the van when I drove away. Okay, me choosing some and unchoosing others is an immoral thing. It's an unjust thing. It's an unethical thing. Let me just say it this way. It's ungodly. You say, well, you just have a problem with God's fairness or unfairness. No. I have a problem with determinism, Calvinism, fatalism, because it's not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like. Jesus tells a story. There's a guy beaten up and who had been robbed and lying dead. And the Pharisee comes by, but he doesn't want to be made unclean by being around a guy who possibly dies as he's going up to worship. And then a Levite comes by. You guys remember the story, right? Then finally, a good Samaritan, a guy that this guy were healthy, would spit in his face. He did it went all out of the way, bound him up, put him on his own donkey, took him to the end, paid an exorbitant amount of money to make sure he's taken care of. And Jesus says, who's your neighbor? Who's the just? Is it the religious leaders who are going up and making sure they stay clean so they can worship God? Or is the real righteous guy somebody that you would spit upon? who knows that you hate them, <laughs> knows that you just think he's disgusting because he's a half-breed, half-Jew and half-Assyrian. But yet, even knowing that this man were in good health, he wouldn't let him touch him. Nevertheless, he helped him. He's a righteous guy. More righteous than the Pharisees and the Levites. No. Just, we're, we understand good and bad because we're made in God's image. We all agree stealing is wrong because we're made in God's image. When I go into an atheistic country like we did when the Iron Curtain fell, that was one of the number one questions they asked. We know there's right and wrong. Why? And we had to tell them there's one reason. You're made in God's image and God's DNA is imprinted upon you because he's real and you're real. <laughs> you're really alive. So is God. And so again here, we're supposed to be fine with God being unjust, immoral, unfair. Here's another quote, same thing, book three, chapter 23. Therefore, those whom God passes over, this is an 
Calvinistic lingo. They like to use this term. Whoever God passes over, he condemns. And this he does for no other reason than he wills to exclude them from the inheritance which he predestined for his own children. Here's another quote out of book three, chapter 23. Many professing a desire to defend the deity from an individual charge admit the doctrine of election, but deny that anyone is reprobated, damned to hell. This they do ignorantly, childishly. They're like children, since there could be no election without its opposite, reprobation. Now, it's interesting when you read the stories of guys who heard Calvinism for the first time and they were appalled by it. And then they have this emotional story where they eventually bent to the will of God in their, in their thinking to just accept that I'm the elite because I was elected. And then there's the unelected and God's equally is glorified in their damnation. God be glorified for all those you didn't choose. That's where they want you to come. And many of the leading Calvinists were repulsed at that thought originally until they finally submitted to the complete will and power and nature of God and realized it is what it is. You, you understand that's the Muslim religion, right? That's their God. It's the will of Allah. Oh, that guy over there has a broken leg. He's dying. Should I help him? I don't know. It's just the will of Allah. He got blown up. It's the will of Allah. He's rich. It's the will of Allah. He's poor. It's the will of Allah. That's just the way they look at it. It's, again, a deterministic view. If you hear a debate with a Christian and an atheist, this is what the atheist camps out on. Does God know everything? Yes. Is the God all-powerful? Yes. Then God made Satan to be Satan. God made man to be sinful. God created all evil and God created all sin. Why would I serve a God like that? You have an evil God. So I, I choose not to believe in God at all if that's my choice. Just real quickly, it's not in the notes. It, it's just as simple, guys. Just because God knows the future doesn't mean God makes the future. And just because evil came from God's good doesn't mean God created it. Let me just give you a real quick analogy. Voila, you have the ability to know the future for the next three months. Going to play the lottery, are you? Okay. Um, and now you happen to know across the street are three guys. They're all selling drugs. Pretty, pretty hardcore guys. But you know, because you know the future, if you were to go across and preach the gospel to those three guys, one of those guys would radically get saved. Have a tremendous testimony. Goes on television. Thousands of people come to Christ because of his powerful testimony. But before you share with those three guys, you also know the other two guys are really going to be mad about losing their friend. And they're really mad at you. So they come across the street and they kill your whole family. And then in a high speed chase, when they're trying to get away, they're, they run over a lady with pushing a baby in a stroller. And then they knock some other people over and kill them. And they finally crash into a school bus, killing everybody on the school bus. So you didn't do anything yet. Do you go over and share the Lord with that guy or not? The fact is, is if you didn't go share the Lord with that guy, that would be evil. Because the definition of evil is the absence of good. Let me give you another analogy and I'll come back to that. You just got through swimming in your pool. You're all dried off. You're getting ready to go in and watch at three o'clock Gilligan Isle because it's on and you don't want to miss that old rerun. And just as you're almost ready to go inside, you hear a splash behind you and you look over and you see the neighbor kid somehow got into your backyard. 
and this two-year-old kid is floundering in the pool. And you said, I'm completely dried off. It's not my kid. It's not like I pushed him in. And I don't want to miss Gilligan Isle. And so you open the door and you go on and you grab your bag of chips and you're watching away and you hear the sirens and, and, uh, and they show up and they fish the kid out of the pool and he's dead and they come knocking on your door going, did you know about that? Yeah. Did you know the baby fell in the pool? Yeah, but you got to realize I was completely dried off and Gilligan Isle was starting and you understand, right? What would happen? What would everybody in the world think about you? They would think you did evil, right? But you did nothing. It wasn't like you got a pole and pushed the kid under. It wasn't like you tripped him. You did nothing. But the fact is you should have done something. You did nothing when you should have done something. Do you know what I'm saying? You had a possible good to do. And because you didn't do that possible good, it's evil. In the same way, if this guy could be leave hell and go into heaven for eternity, and I know that he would receive the Lord, I can't watch him flounder in the pool, so to speak. I need to go share the Lord with him, even though I know evil is going to come from the good. Now, did any of that evil I do? Did I kill my family? Did I help them kill my family? Did I help them? No, I did nothing. No evil was done by me at all. Everything I did was good. But yet evil did come from the good. And the same with God. To give man a free will so we could choose to love him. You see, in Calvinism, any way you look at it, we're robots. I determine you to believe. I determine you to accept the doctrines of the Bible. I determine that you love me. I determine that you go to heaven with me. So I'm in heaven with God, but none of it was from me. It was really God determined. Yes, I said, I, I said, yes, Lord, be the Lord of my life, but really it was God doing it. So in all of eternity, God really just has a bunch of robots, doesn't he? But God wants people in heaven who truly chose to love him, chose to fight their flesh, chose to fight the world, chose to fight the devil, to live for God and as miserable of a job we're doing. <laughs> we're trying, right? So if we, in, our, in this earth with Satan, in this earth with sinful bodies, in this earth with the whole world going after the spirit of this age, and we're resisting it, what would happen if we went into a world where there's no devil, no sinful body, and everybody there is about the spirit of God doing the will of God? What would happen with us then? We would have complete success every day of the week for eternity, wouldn't we? So, but everybody in heaven is those who not just chose God, but they chose God repeatedly every day fighting the fight to, to, to serve the Lord. And you say, well, what about babies that are aborted? We have the millennial period. They're going to be in a world, in a new body, but they'll be in a world where man can choose or not choose. At the end of the millennial period, Satan will be released. And they'll know what it's like to choose God or not to choose God. What about the Old Testament saints? They were preached by Jesus, the gospel, for three days. But they'll also live for a thousand years in the millennial reign and have a chance to choose Christ for all of eternity. They will. They're in their new bodies. But yet everybody in heaven, angels who have free wills, they had to fight against the devil, didn't they? They all had to resist the will of the evil one. Everybody with a free will in heaven, angels, from Adam and Eve to the end of times, are all have lived in a place where man could choose God or choose the devil, and we all overwhelmingly chose God. And now in our new bodies, in heaven, in new heavens and a new earth, we will choose him for eternity, and it's our choice. 
and God can really be around creatures that love him and choose him out of their own free will. You do not have that with Calvinism. To whatever degree, we are robots, and our will is not really our will. It's God determining it through us. So in Calvinism, they believe we are so evil, we're, are, we're so depraved, that we're so dead spiritually that we could never choose God. So they actually teach God regenerates you, which means bring, gives you life, born again. And after you're born again, then you believe on the Lord. So in actuality, when somebody for the first time says, Lord, be the Lord of my life, you are already born again by God because you never could have believed in him unless he completely regenerated you. Guys, the New Testament's full of verses that say the opposite of that. And again, if I were to go into all the, the points, they, they like to make the points into TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And if I went through all of those, which we don't have time, as you can tell, I, I'm on page two and I've been talking for 40 minutes. Um, but sometime, if you want that, I, there's a six-part study I have that goes through all of it. If you'd like to go through that discipleship, let me know and we will do it. So... If you ask a Calvinist the question, do you really know for sure that you're the elect? They don't. If you were to ask a Calvinist, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? They cannot say that with confidence. Because once you choose to say, Jesus be the Lord of my life, you now have to persevere, and this is what they say, unto death. That proves you're the elect. And so by their own admission, they say a person can act and talk and look like a Christian for 50 years. And then two years before they die, they quit living an obedient life. And even though for 50 years we were all believing they were, those last two years of life proved they weren't. And so I like to ask the Calvinists the question. A lady just loving the Lord, serving the Lord, and, and she gets in a car wreck. And after the operation and her body's mangled, the doctor keeps giving her these pain pills and she's addicted to these pain pills and they're not doing the job. So she starts trading the pain pills in on the street for some heroin and that takes the that takes the pain away and then she gets addicted to heroin and then she five years after the accident dies of an OD and he asked the Calvinist her mistake was not dying in that car wreck had she died in the car wreck she would have been the elect but five years later we know now she's not the elect do you understand that, that, that is not a reaching analogy? That's a perfect analogy. And this is why they, they cannot know. You say, well, do, do, do Calvinists have assurance of salvation? They believe that their doctrine of election actually makes you more secure in your salvation. It gives you no security. Because you're every day, every week asking, am I elect? Am I elect? Am I proven I'm an elect? Is my good works enough to be proven the elect? Or is my good works just looking like good works and they're not real good works? It's me and my motive is wrong. Yeah, I did those good works, but my heart really wasn't right when I did the good works. So maybe God doesn't even count those as good works. And then you go through a tough season for six months. The whole time you're like, I'm not the elect. I'm not the elect. I'm not the elect. And then you repent. Oh, I am the elect. I am the elect. I am the elect. You're questioning it. But see, in the doctrine that we teach, the moment you believe, you're saved. Your past works, it didn't matter if they're good or bad. There are some people like Cornelius in Acts 10. He was a good man. The Bible tells us that. He was a centurion who feared God. God said at that point, he had a memorial in heaven of this guy's prayers and giving. Cornelius was a good man. 
But his good works did not amount to righteousness. His good works did not make him as perfect as God is perfect. But then when he got saved, probably wasn't a big difference in his lifestyle. It was sort of like, yeah, I'm born again. Oh, we'll watch to see the change. Oh, it looks the same. Because he was a good man seeking God before he became born again. Then there's other people like Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her. Boy, when she believed, boy, she looked different. Okay, but are works good or bad? Oh, get your works up a little bit better. Stop doing that, stop doing that. Then maybe God will accept you to be born again. We don't teach that, do we? Your past works are irrelevant. Your present work, when you believe, is irrelevant. We're not saved by works, are we? What about future works? They don't affect it either way, good or bad. Because when we say, Jesus, I believe in your death and resurrection for my sins, at that moment, you have eternal life because you believed. Right? John three sixteen, Whoever believes shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. So important. So, Let's look at a biblical election. And I, I can pretty much look into the future and say this is going to be a tart part two message. <laughs> part one and part two. I'm going to look into the future there. But here, let's look at election. Biblical election simply says this. If a person believes in Jesus as his Savior, they are now one of the elect. If a person does not believe in Jesus as his Savior, they're not the elect. But they can easily change that status by believing. Election is not some esoteric thing God did by determining ahead of time who would believe or not believe. We don't believe that. Election is God's choice of those who believe in Christ is one of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Election or chosen is a Greek word, eklego, refers to choosing in Christ, in Christ, a people whom he destined to be holy and blameless in his sight. Election is because I believe in Jesus, now you're in Christ. In Christ, now I am an elect because I'm in Christ. In his sight, I am holy and blameless. Look at number C there. I have a verse for you in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But Paul teaching about election involves, involves the following truths. Number one, election is Christ-centric, not self-centric, not individualistic. The election of humans occurs only in the union with Christ. In our Western culture, and we see this even within Calvinism, it's all about you as an individual. That is not what we see in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Jews in the Old Testament were going, well, I know the nation of Israel is the elect, but am I? They never did that. They said, I'm one of the kids of Abraham. I'm elect. End of story. Because I'm, God chose Abraham as the elect, and I'm one of Abraham's kids, I'm elect. A child of Abraham, I'm the elect. There's no question about this. Now in the New Testament, it tells us plainly in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us, how? In him. Is there any question there? He chose us, which is the word elect. He chose us, the elect, in him, before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What happened before the foundation of the world? He chose us individually or didn't choose us individually? No. What happened before the foundation of the world is he said, everyone that's in Christ will be the elect and they will be holy and without blame before God in love. You get it? So when we really look at it, Jesus is the actual elect. 
And we are considered the elect because we're in Christ. The Bible makes this clear. In Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one is whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now this is important. In Matthew 12, 18, I'm not going to read it, same verse. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 1. So when you think about it, he actually makes it clear there that the elect one is going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He didn't have to say the Jews because they were already elect, right? They were already chosen. Remember the, when God first called Abraham there in Genesis 12? Abraham, I'm going to bless you and only the Jews forever. It's not what he said, was it? Go back and read Genesis 12.1. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it always was preordained by God that God chose Abraham, not just so the Jews would be the elect. God chose Abraham and his descendants in which the Messiah would eventually come. And through that chosen seed of Abraham, Christ who came according to the flesh, a Jew of the tribe of Judah, but according to the spirit, he was God who went into that human body, would be the one through Abraham, bless all of the world. First Peter 2, 4 says, Coming to him, Jesus, as the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen and what? Elected by God and precious. So Christ is the elect. He's the foundation of all election. This is an important sentence here. On the bottom of uh, page, I can't see, I wrote, I messed up. Page 4B, it says, Only in union with Christ do we, have, do we become members of the elect. No one is elect apart from a union with Christ through faith. So the elect is Jesus, and everybody in Jesus is the elect. It says this plainly in Ephesians 1.4. Once again, listen. Just as he chose elect us in him. Listen to Ephesians 1.6 and 7. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted. How? In the beloved. Listen to verse 7. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed, how? In himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together into one all things, how? In Christ. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth, how? In him. Do you understand those in hymns, in Christ? They make no sense unless you understand He's talking about the elect and how all of the blessings are predestined for the elect in Christ. Ephesians 1, 12 and 13, that we who trust, first trusted in Christ, there it is, we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're going to be talking about this later in more detail as we continue through Ephesians 1. So election happens in him through his blood. Never could have happened had Jesus not been our sacrifice, our substitute, taken away our sins. So it tells us that in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So God purposed before creation to form a people through Christ's redemption, through Christ's redemptive death on the cross. In him, before the foundation of the world, he determined, predestined that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. 
So God, before the foundation of the world, chose that all who would believe in Jesus would become the elect also. Not some esoteric determinism as Calvinists claim. The Calvinists claim God determines and we don't really know why he chose or didn't choose. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says everybody can tell who God chooses. Well, how do you know? If you believe. Everybody who has a believing heart in Christ, his death, and his resurrection is the elect. No question about it. Well, am I the elect of God? You know what? It's not you. It's everyone who believes in Christ is the elect. But, but, but am I personally? It's not a question that would be asked by an Eastern mind. That's a, it, we're so self-centered in our Western culture that we even ask that question. Do you understand? In Calvinism, it's all about you individually. And God did it individually, and you're the elite. You're the elect. You're the supreme. You're eternal because we don't know why. Just feel lucky. Feel blessed. Don't, don't question a good thing happening. That's what they want you to believe. We're saying no. Say, well, how did God choose Abraham? We don't know it's some arbitrary choice of Abraham. You're reading that into the text. It could be that God looked at the hearts of all the people on the earth and Abraham had a believing heart above everybody else. We don't know. But to say that it's an arbitrary choice wouldn't be true. Because we, we look at God choosing in the New Testament that we can see and it's not arbitrary at all. It's not esoteric at all. God says, I'm choosing, this is how I'm choosing and you can be a part of that choice if you choose to believe in him. The election is grounded on Christ's sacrificial death to save us from our sins. Acts 20, 28. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Romans 3, 24 to 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. Now catch this, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Am I going to be justified just as if I've never sinned? Am I going to be counted righteous? Well, it's arbitrary. Only God knows that. No! Everybody can know that. I can know that about you. You can know that about me. We can all know that about ourselves. What does it say? If we believe in the work of Christ in his death and resurrection, we can know we're the elect and we know God has a predestined plan for our life. Election in Christ is primarily corporate, not individual. Therefore, the election is corporate and embraces individual persons only as they identify and associate themselves with the body of Christ, the true church. We're going to get there in chapter 5. Paul says, in chapter 5, he says, Christ looks at all of us as one, the bride. He doesn't look at us as a bunch of individuals. He said, the elect after my resurrection are Jews and Gentiles. It's not about Abraham anymore. It, the faith of Abraham, sure. Everybody has the faith of Abraham. You're adopted into Judaism. You want to be a Jew? You want to be one of the elect? Have not the lineage, not the DNA of Abraham, just have the faith of Abraham. This is what Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us. If you have the faith of Abraham, or actually Romans 4 says it as well. If you have the faith of Abraham, then you are one of the elect chosen of God. But you don't have to be. Gentile, you don't know anything about Abraham. It's okay. <laughs> because the body of Christ now is Jew and Gentile. And you combined make my bride. That's what's important. The important is about you individually. The important is 
Christ so loved the church. That's what Ephesians 5 says. And the church is his bride. And he died for the church because he loves the bride. So if you are in Christ, then you're in the one body, which is this church, which is his bride. You are elect. So election again, in Ephesians 1, and 23, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. We are the body. He is the head of the, of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in Christ, we become the elect. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, verse 5, 7, and 9, as an election of a people, a people group. In chapter 4, verse 12, the elect are called the body of Christ. In Matthew 16, 18, my church, my church, I will build my church. In 1 Peter 2, 9, a people belonging to God. In Revelation 19, 7, the bride of Christ. This is also true of Israel as a nation. If people chose not to be a part of Israel nation, Ishmael, Esau, they were no longer a part of the elect. Also, it tells us in Deuteronomy and 2 Kings, if people chose to, by sin, walk away and no longer identify with the nation of Israel, they were no longer the elect. That's not true in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you walk away, God holds on to you. You don't get to walk away. Election to salvation in Christ is offered to all. Here's a major difference between us and Calvinists. I'm going to hold you just for a couple more minutes. Pretend service here is two hours long. We, I'm going to let you out early. It's all in the perspective. Election to salvation in Christ is offered to all. Calvinists teach it's only determined by God randomly, arbitrarily, to only a few elect. Biblical Christianity very much disagrees. Listen to John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do we hear that? The world. You see, that's the gospel. I'm going to tell you two different things, and you tell me if it's good news or not good news. Hey, everybody. God loves some of you, but not all of you. But to those that God loves, good news for you. For you guys, not such good news. Is that a gospel? Listen to this. God loves everybody. Is that good news? You, you see the difference? God loves everybody, wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth. Good news. God loves some of you, and some of you, he wants to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not good. Whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Good news, right? Whoever is the special elect, only God knows that for sure, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you want to go knock on somebody's door? There is a chance, a percentage, I don't know, that God might have elected you. And if that's the case, I'm going to share a story with you, believe or don't believe. If you don't believe, don't worry about it because you were never elected to begin with. Who can preach that? This is why they don't. It's ridiculous. There's the, it says good news. We go out to preach the what? Good news. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 6. God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom. Help me out here. For all to be testified in time. 1 Timothy 4.10. 
For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of what? All men, especially those who believe. They actually experience salvation because they believe. Timoth, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? All men. So salvation is actuated by faith, acceptance, trust, receiving, whatever word you want to use then God's gift of salvation is given to you in Christ. 1 Timothy 4.10, once again, but focus on this this time. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, what? Especially of those who believe. We labor. Paul says we persuade. We get into a battle to answer every question we can to compel men. We're ambassadors of Christ pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. Because if you will simply trust in the living God, if you will simply believe in him at this moment, you'll have eternal life. You will not perish. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for What? Everyone who does what? Who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel message is powerful, but you won't know it's powerful until you believe. And when you believe, you're born again. And God's spirit enters you and you begin living. So here's the next point. The believer is incorporated into the election of the body of Christ, the church, by the Holy Spirit, he brings us into this election. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, uh, whether slave or free, have all been made to drink into the one spirit. John 17, a passage I've been hitting on lately. Listen to this oneness that the Holy Spirit brings us into. John 17, 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Thus, Jesus is the actual elect of God. Since we are now in Christ, we are now also the elect of God. The virtue of Jesus through the Holy Spirit has made us the elect of God. We're going to be talking about the work of the Holy Spirit as we get to Ephesians 1.13. Boy, you guys, give me one more second here, okay? And you can, you can write to the elders of the church telling them that this can't happen again. <laughs> so God initiates and we respond. It's not all up to God. It's not determined by God. Do we get that? God has made the way for everyone. Now you have to believe to actuate that cross. He paid for your sins, but your sins right now are not, are held against you. Your sins right now, you're gonna pay for yourself if you don't actuate the work that Christ did for your sins. Do you see? You believe in his cross to pay your sins. Now your, your account got zeroed out. All your sins now are are gone forever, past, present, even future sins. All our sins were paid for Christ in the future. He died 2,000 years ago. So, the Calvinists teach that man has no say in the matter. Those who are determined to believe, no matter what, they're going to believe. It doesn't matter about their will. Those who are not determined to believe can't become the elect, no matter what they do, even if they believe, even if they go to church and pray and pray and pray, it doesn't matter. They're not going to make it because God determined that they wouldn't make it. 
Notice how man chooses to believe that puts him into Christ or causes him to become the elect of God. Now, the, the Calvinists would say, there's your works. Your works are faith. No, the Bible says faith is not works. Clearly, in Ephesians, or Romans 4, Abraham believed God. It was not of works. Faith is not works. Ephesians 1, listen to verse 11 to 14 again. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, what? Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption, the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Again, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that what? Whoever, not the elect, not those gods determined, whoever believes in him, it's actuated. You won't perish now. You'll have everlasting life now. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God wishes all men to be saved. God has paid for everyone's sins. God has made a way for all to believe. In 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we labor and suffer reproach, because we, we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. John 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone, not the elect. It's up to you, any individual. We all have the power of free choice. Everyone who believes will have salvation. Those who believe in Christ. If you reread Ephesians 1, you'll see that. He's talking in Ephesians 1.1 1, 1, to the saints, to the faithful in Christ. Christ counts as faithful, Paul said in 1 Timothy 2. Everybody, we are just as in Christ, in him. It's actuated when we believe in him. Well, we're going to have to leave it there and, and title this part one um, on election and predestination. There's so much more that, that I, I want to, to bring it to, but I, you know, I feel really good that what the Lord wanted us to hear today, we heard.